0: All right, so have you ever heard the phrase, and I'm almost sure that you have, have you ever heard the phrase, you're not the boss of me, (laughs) or you can't tell me what to do? So lest you think that that only happens in your home, uh, that happens in just about everyone's home, and it's not just a little kid reality, you reach a certain point in life, and we have these conversations a lot, Amanda and I do in our home. You reach a certain point in life when you realize that you never truly escape middle school, that you just always live in a different version of middle school further and further that you go. You find this out in your workplace, you find this out in different areas. This phrase, you're not the boss of me. Like, we, we really struggle with the idea of authority. We struggle with the idea of authority in our lives, in our homes. Goodness knows in the world in which we live, people struggle with this idea of authority. If you're involved in sports, there are such people as umpires and referees who have so-called authority uh, over your situation that you struggle with their place of authority to make judgments and calls. So we have uh, an old man softball team going on right now at at Emmaus. We haven't publicized it widely, or widely, it's wise that we have not publicized it widely uh, to protect the reputations of the people involved in the, uh, in the softball league, but this last week of the game, I had to chew on my glove, so I wasn't the pastor that got kicked out of the game yelling at the referee in a church league uh, game, or yelling at, the, yelling at the umpire, I should say, in the church league game. This whole idea that somebody else has authority over me, or somebody else can tell me what to do, or somebody else has a power That I don't have. Kids, when there's a babysitter that comes to your home or your parents put your older sibling in charge of you and they say, This person has authority right now. In other words, this person can act as me, they can have the authority in the home. It's that idea of how do I respond to someone having authority in my life. Here's the kicker though we also struggle with the idea of divine authority. We struggle with the idea that there is a God who has authority over our lives and over the world around us. You may be here this morning and you struggle with religion because to you religion is a social construct or something developed by society just to help people feel better about themselves, or worse yet, you see religion as a way that people have created authority so they can have money and power in this world. But what I want you to think about this morning is what would it look like for the God of the universe to show his authority in the world. The word authority holds together chapters 8 through 9 of Matthew, and it's going to be at the very core of what we're looking at this morning. So Matthew chapter 8, our question is, what does it look like for God to have authority and to show that authority in the world? Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Remember that the centurion is, think of him as a junior officer in the Roman military. That's just kind of a fair general description. So he certainly had a level of authority in the Roman military, and he's facing this situation where a servant That word servant can mean son or child, but more likely in this situation, it's talking about actual servant, but he's caring about someone in his household who is suffering because of some type of paralysis that has happened. And so you have here a story of someone who is in power, someone who has a certain level of influence, has a certain level of money. Right after a story we read about this leper, who was outcast from society. The centurion the same way is considered as an outcast from society because the people of this time did not like the Roman military. But here this centurion is, he has a situation that he can't fix. And when you think about your life, and when you think about your family, and we think about the world around us, the story of the gospel, the understanding of the good news of Jesus begins when we realize that we have a situation that we can't fix on our own. When we realize that we are up against something, whatever it is in the world, but we realize, you know what, there is no way on my own power or my own ability that I'm going to be able to deal with this. And when you get to that point, however that point comes in life, you're at a point where you're able to begin to think about, well, I need help from someone, where do I go? So the next verse, verse 8 says, or not verse 8, verse 7, Jesus says to him, I will come and heal him. In Jesus' words here, depending on the translation that you're reading from, it may read as a question, perhaps. Some of the things say, some of the translations will say, shall I come, should I come, do you want me to come and heal him? The way the wording is set out, it's not obvious whether something is a statement or whether it's a question, but either way, we know that Jesus' words here show a willingness to help that he is showing compassion towards someone who is in need, someone that the rest of the world doesn't care about, who's pushed to the side because of his role with the military. But Jesus says, I care about what's happening in your home. I'm willing. I will come and do this. And so then in verse 8, the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant Will be healed. I recognize I have a need, and I recognize there's no way that I can meet that need on my own, but here's someone who can. And the centurion, when he says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. It shows that he's recognizing Jesus' status and his ability and his power. He recognizes here is someone who has greater power, greater ability than I will ever have, but I'm not worthy, it's not like on my own merit. I didn't earn this. Jesus coming to heal my servant or Jesus coming into my life or coming into my home, I didn't earn this, I'm not worthy of this, but he is willing, he wants to do this in your life. And so when you realize, I have a problem I can't deal with on my own, and you also humbly come before him saying, I realize I'm not worthy, I'm not earning this, there's nothing about me that says you should solve this situation or come into my life, but I trust you, you're in a good place to be able to receive God's work in your life. When you're talking to someone about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, Here's an idea that you can give or a picture you can give that sometimes helps this. One of the best pictures I know to talk to somebody about being a follower of Jesus is the idea of raising the white flag. This idea of surrender. This idea of I give up. I cannot do this on my own. I can't overcome the sin of my life. I can't overcome my separation from God. I can't overcome the reality of death. None of these things could I come overcome on my own so what do i do i raise the white flag i give up i trust you being a christian begins when we raise the white flag and say lord i can't do this i trust you i'm not worthy you have to step in and solve this situation and so in the very next verse it says the reason that he's able to have this faith verse nine i too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So with this centurion, game recognizes game, okay? It's kind of the way that you would uh, say it. He has authority. He recognizes what it is to be in a position of authority, and then he looks to Jesus and says, that person, too, understands something about authority. Another way you might think of this, would be the way that someone who has served in the military or someone who has served in law enforcement is able to look at someone else in that type of situation and they just have a mutual understanding that the rest of us would not be able to have about what's being faced. You enter a special club, you've encountered things that nobody else has encountered and it allows you to be able to connect with somebody in a way you couldn't do otherwise. In this situation, this centurion understands something about authority And he looks to Jesus and says, I don't know everything about that one over there, but he too understands something about authority. And he has authority to make things happen. And so then in the very next verse, what does Jesus do? In verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He was amazed at what this man had said. He marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel Have I found such faith? Now, does that mean that he found no faith of any kind? No, because just immediately we had the leper. Just immediately before this in chapter 8, we had the leper who had shown faith. But what is different about the centurion is the centurion recognizes Jesus' authority. His faith is based on the fact that when he looks at Jesus, he realizes that this one has power and authority that is different than anyone else. And Jesus says, I haven't found anybody else in all Israel with that type of faith. And what you see coming out of this is a story that's going to come a little bit later in this chapter, where the disciples get into a storm, and they begin to panic when the storm comes up, and they call out to Jesus for help because they're afraid they're going to drown. And you know what Jesus says? He says, oh, you of little faith. This story with the centurion is meant to be a contrast with the disciples that's going to come later when they face the storm. This centurion, what did he not have? He had not grown up in the church. Well, that's, he had not grown up in the synagogue. <laughs> he had not gone to the temple. He didn't have the same awareness, most likely, of the Hebrew scriptures. He didn't have the religious rituals that the other people had, but he did have faith. You know one thing we realize in our world? Sometimes, hear me out on this because this applies to a bunch of us in the room. Sometimes, when you have grown up in the church, when you have grown up with the stories, and you have grown up with the rituals, and you have been around it after a while, you almost grow numb to how good the good news of Jesus really is. And we begin to push it aside, or our faith is so weak, even though we have all this background. And then along comes someone who doesn't have the background, who didn't grow up in church, who doesn't know all the Bible stories, and they hear about the authority and power of Jesus and think, this is the greatest news I've ever heard in my life. This is the most overwhelming thing I've ever heard. What we have to be careful of is if we've been around for a while, and you know the stories, and you've done the rituals, and if you're honest, it gets boring at times, we have to be careful that we do not grow numb to how good Jesus is, to how powerful he is, to how compassionate he is, to how loving he is, because when we grow numb to that, we miss his power and his love at work in our life. This centurion right here recognizes, and Jesus is amazed by the faith that he shows, so much so that he turns around in verse 11, and he says, I tell you, so Jesus has just said, I didn't find anyone in Israel with this kind of faith. Verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's kind of a strange, uh, strange set of verses there. What's being talked about with, with east and west here? This is language from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures, about how at the end of time when God made all things right, that he would gather his people who had been spread. Some people thought it only applied to Jews who had been sent out of the Promised Land. But over time in Scripture, and especially with the ministry of Jesus, it comes to apply to all people, Jews and Gentiles, who will be brought in. And so many will come from east and west, and they will recline at table, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If your Bible doesn't have reference marks and you like to write in your Bible, the background for this phrasing is Isaiah chapter 25, specifically Isaiah chapter 25 verse six. Sometimes when you talk to people about heaven, people will talk about heaven in a way that seems a little bit um, irreverent and they'll refer to heaven as the great buffet in the sky, (laughs) or I can't wait till I get to heaven because there's gonna be this incredible buffet of food and there's gonna be all these great things that are out there. If you hear someone refer to heaven in that way, this is the one place where you can say, you know what, the Bible does actually say something about that. That's not all that heaven's about, and it's not about all of our needs and wants being met, it's about being in the presence of God and worshiping him, but there are references to buffets (laughs) and food In heaven, this is a cool connection point when you're talking to people because what is given in Isaiah chapter 25 is the people will be gathered in and there will be this incredible spread of all of God's goodness laid out for the people as they come. But here's the kicker. It may not include the people we think that it would include. We have the idea that the people who check off all the boxes and who hold things together and have the right image will be included in this But Jesus says there will be many who will be gathered from the east and west because of the name of Jesus. Their faith in Jesus will be brought in. And the opposite of that is even more amazing and and frankly, uh, more terrifying. Verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom, in other words, those who think that they are part of the kingdom because of their ancestry or their heritage or their participation in these rituals, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Separated from the light of God, from the place of God, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is in reference to this hostility, this angry pride against the ways of God. So here's the idea. When God is talking about what it means to be a part of His kingdom, entrance into that kingdom is not based on your family background. It's not based on the rituals you participated in. It's not based on how good of a person you are. It's based on faith in Jesus Christ, what he has done. How do you become a part of the kingdom of heaven? How do you participate in all of God's good things? You know how you do that? You raise the white flag and say, I surrender. I trust in you. I cannot do this on my own. The person who thinks that they hold it together on their own or thinks that they're okay because their grandma went to church or thinks that they're okay because they go to church every once in a while, they try to be a good person. That's us trying to prove ourselves good enough for the kingdom of God. It's not about that. It's about I raise the white flag. Lord, I trust you. I have faith in you alone. And so what does Jesus say at the end here? In verse 13, he says to the centurion, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Okay, now don't miss a cool piece of irony that is, is tied in here. If you look back in verse 9 in your Bible, or if you've got your phone open, if you look back in verse 9, what did the centurion say about his authority? He said, I can say to a soldier, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this. Now go down and look at verse 13. What does Jesus say to the centurion? The centurion, to the centurion, Jesus said, go. He is using the centurion's own words, his own recognition of authority, his own faith, and he's saying, yes, that is true of you now, now go. Go not because it's in a domineering sort of way, but in a compassionate sort of way. You recognize authority, I have that authority, your servant will be healed, now go and watch it happen. Here's what I want you to see. This idea of authority, this idea of Jesus's power and his goodness is stretched all through these chapters. So what we're gonna do is I wanna take you step by step a couple of verses starting at the end of chapter seven and let's go through chapter 8 and chapter 9, and I want you to see where this idea of authority shows up. So, sometimes with the word authority, and sometimes with, just with the concept. So, let's start here. Start at the end of chapter 7 in verses 28 and 29, because this idea of who's the boss, who has authority, this idea goes all through here. All right, chapter 7, verses 28 and 29 When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So what kind of authority does Jesus have? He has the authority to speak and interpret and fulfill the words of God. He speaks with authority. Now look in verse 14 of chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 14, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. He has the authority to heal and restore life, even to drive out demons. Verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits, how? With a word, and healed all demons who were sick. Look in verse, um, look down in verse 20. There are these people who are telling Jesus that they will follow him wherever he goes, and in verse 20, Jesus said to him, this one who said, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And then Jesus turns around in verse 22 and he says to the next man, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Here's the deal. Jesus has the authority to demand ultimate commitment. When we talk about following Jesus, this is not about follow Jesus whenever it works out for you. Jesus has the authority to say, I have all authority. You must follow me. You must give me full commitment. He has the authority to restore creation. Look down at verse 26. No, not 26. Look at, uh, yeah, 26 will work. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And they, behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was this herd of pigs that was off to the side and the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us into that herd of pigs. And so he said to them, go. And they go into the herd of pigs. The pigs run down into the water. Just before that story is the story where Jesus calms the storm. So he has authority over creation, over the storms, and he has authority over the animals of the earth. He has authority over evil spirits. Look down in verse 32. When he said to those pigs, he said to the, or he actually said to the evil spirits, go, and so they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the waters. Now look in, verse, or in chapter nine, starting in verse six. So Jesus has authority to do all those other things, but he especially has the authority to forgive sins. Chapter nine, verse six. But that you may know, That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus has the authority to heal, but he also has the authority to forgive sins. One other place, look down in verse 15. of chapter nine, Jesus said to the disciples of John, verse 15, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? No, this is not the time. So down in verse 17, what does he say? He says new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Jesus has the authority to overcome human barriers that are set in place. He has the authority to eat with sinners and tax collectors and to change these rules about fasting. Why? Because he speaks the word of God. Here's the question we have to answer. Do I understand what it means to recognize Jesus' authority? Well, What makes his authority so great? Here's the first thing. Jesus' authority is divine authority. Why is this authority so great? How can he be the boss to do all of these things? It's because he works with the power of God because he is God with us. Look in chapter nine, verse 34. Chapter nine, verse 34. After he cast out some more demons, look at what the Pharisees say in chapter nine, verse 34. The Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. In other words, Jesus might look great, but he's doing these things because he gets his power from an evil source. Now, the opposite of that is found at the end of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, it says, when the centurion and those who were with him, this is at the crucifixion of Jesus, When the centurion, those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Okay, here's one of those cool things about the book of Matthew. More than likely, more than likely, this is not the same centurion. Could be, in which case it makes it an even more amazing story. But what Matthew is doing is he is taking, in chapter 8, that we've already looked at, a story of a centurion who recognizes his authority and Jesus heals the servant in his house. Then you get to the very end of the book at the crucifixion of Jesus and Matthew mentions another centurion who at the crucifixion of Jesus looks and says, truly, this was the Son of God. Did Jesus do these things by the power of demons? As a crazy man? Or did he do these things because he was truly the son of God? That is the question. That's the question every one of us has to deal with. Jesus' power, is it based on another source or does it become because he has the power of God? And here's the thing. As one having the power of God, he acts with the divine authority, but he acts with authority in a way that he is caring for those who are weak And he is hard on those who are prideful. Look at this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting, uh, it's a little section from verse 8. Paul is speaking about this idea of authority. And he says, our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. When we think about authority in the world, We usually think about authority as separating us from people often so we can take advantage of them. A worldly view of authority is I'm in charge, you'll do what I say, and I'm going to get something out of it. (laughs) Jesus' idea of authority is those who lead are those who serve. Why do you have authority at your job? Why do you have authority in your home? Why do we have authority through government. Why do we have authority in these different areas? Is it so we can dominate people? No. It's so we can build them up. If you are in a place of authority, God has placed you there so you can build others up, not destroy them. His authority, divine authority, the reason we can trust him is because it's about building up. It's about helping those who are weak and confronting those who are prideful. Let me tell you, if you are turned off to Christianity, and you are turned off to the things of God, because you hear that God has authority, and all of your experiences with authority are negative, let me remind you that his authority is very different. His authority comes through a picture that we find in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, look at these verses. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, though he had this authority, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to. Look what happens in verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Do you know what makes the story of Christianity so incredible, the story of Jesus so compelling? Here is one with ultimate authority over the entire universe, over all creation. He has authority in his words. He has authority in his actions. Do you know what he did with this, that authority? He died for us. He took on flesh. He suffered in our place. He died for us and then he rose again to defeat the power of sin and death. Divine authority is not separating yourself from those in need. It's coming near to those who need you most. That's the picture of authority. So here's the question I have for you on this next slide. You guys, yeah. Do I believe Jesus has authority? Who's in charge of your life? Now, kids, you can say your parents because they kind of aren't, but uh, who's in charge? The old Who's the Boss, Tony Danza show. Who's the boss? When we talk to kids about following Jesus, one of the ways we'll talk about Jesus being Lord is to ask them Who's the boss of your life? Who has authority in your life? How do we respond to the fact that Jesus has authority? We have faith in him. When I recognize that Jesus has all authority, when I believe that he is God, that he has done for me what I could never do for myself, what does that do? I respond to him in faith. I look up to him. I worship him. I trust him. How do I know that I really recognize Jesus' authority? I trust him. Secondly, I obey him. We follow him. If he has authority over my life, it means he has authority over my schedule. He has authority over my checkbook. He has authority over my decision making. He has authority over my moral decisions. When Jesus has authority over our lives, we trust him and we obey him because he has ultimate authority. And that doesn't constrict us. It actually sets us free to be able to live the life he's called us to live. And then mission. We go out on mission because he has authority. All right, here's the cool thing about the book of Matthew. Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount ends by saying Jesus spoke with authority. Chapters 8 through 9 are all about Jesus' authority on display. Matthew 27, at the crucifixion of Jesus, the centurion recognizes his authority. Do you know how the book ends? Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Look at these verses. The book of Matthew ends with a reference to authority. Matthew 28, 18. All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. I have all authority. Therefore, go, live on mission, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, leading them toward faith, and teaching them to obey this idea of obedience, to obey everything I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Who's the boss of my life? Who has the authority in the world? Who can tell me what to do? We would urge you to answer that with the name Jesus. Raise the white flag. Lord, I cannot hold my life together on my own. I trust you. I need your salvation. You're in charge. I want to obey you, and I want to live on mission wherever you're calling me to go. We're going to take some time right now to pray together. After we pray, we're going to sing a song about Jesus' greatness, his authority. As we sing that song, we'll pass our offering plates around, and you'll have a chance to respond to God's work in your life. Let's pray together right now. Father, we lead lives, and we live in a world where people struggle with authority. We have government officials, we have teachers, we have coaches, we have parents, we have umpires, we have all kinds of authority in the world. And God, we know that we are prone to rebel. And especially, God, we struggle with divine authority. The idea that you are God and we are not. The idea that we are called to trust in you, God, we want so badly either to hold our lives together on our own or we find ourselves rebelling against you against your truth, even against your love. So God, thank you for Matthew. Chapters eight through nine. Thank you for this whole book that shows us Jesus' authority. God, I pray that if there are people here this morning who are turned off to the idea of Christianity or they struggle with the idea of divine authority because they've seen church authority abused in places, God, set them free from that. That's not what authority is supposed to look like. God, I pray that if there are people here who have grown numb or grown bored with how good the good news of Jesus is, God, that you would call them to repentance today. God, if there's anyone here who has never recognized the authority of Jesus, never raised the white flag and trusted in Him, that they would do that. God, You are great. You are wise. You are compassionate. You are kind and loving. God, help us to trust You, to obey You, to live on mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.